all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to episode 499 of The Whole View. We promised, I think it was an episode or two ago, that we were fulfilling our promises to our Patreons and covering the topics as requested and voted by them. And this one is a doozy, my friend. Sarah's been putting it off for a couple of years. <laughs> but I'm super excited because it's one of the questions that I had. And it's also a topic that is really passionate for the both of us to talk about, not just genetics and epigenetics, which is what I'm super jazzed for, but also other determinants of health, like the social implications that I think our community has really, some some individuals in our community have lost sight of, and I think will be a really great perspective to round out your final, final show. <laughs> Yeah, um, so listeners, if you missed it last week, we made the announcement that next week's show will actually be my last show as a regular co-host of this podcast. Uh, the podcast is continuing. Stacy has amazing plans. There'll be all kinds of amazing guest co-hosts, and sometimes that guest co-host will be me. Um, but it will this this is this is our last really like meaty topic. Next week we're this gonna is the last fourteen pages of show notes that you yeah. have to put together. That's one way to say it. Because when that is when you it. come back, you you will not have to prepare fourteen pages <laughs> of show notes. Um, yeah, and I think this is a really, a really fun, interesting topic to, to wrap up on. So, uh, let's, let's get into it. Let's, let's start with genetics and epigenetics and how important those really are to our health. And what's fascinating to me is that genetics is quite an old study. So, Scientists have been trying to understand genetics for about 100 years um, and specifically understanding how variations in our genes contribute to disease risk. And this falls under like two main categories. So one is focusing on identifying those individual genes where one specific mutation gives rise to a disease that is inherited the second bucket, if you will, of sort of genetic research focuses on understanding genes that don't cause disease themselves, right? That variation isn't causing, right, something like cystic fibrosis, which is caused by a single gene mutation. But instead, that gene variant or maybe a collection of gene variants or maybe how that collection of gene variants interact with each other or interact with the environment together increase your susceptibility to disease. Um, so it's the consequence of many genes and how they're interacting compared to a single gene. So in that first bucket of sort of genetics research, looking at monogenic diseases, diseases that are caused by a single gene mutation, these are actually 
all very rare diseases. Um, and they include a lot that uh, people have probably heard of. I just mentioned cystic fibrosis. There's also things like sickle cell anemia, Tay-Sachs disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, there's even uh, a whole class of monogenic auto-inflammatory diseases like familial Mediterranean fever. Um, but all of these are fairly rare. And in every single one of these cases, scientists can understand how that mutation in the gene actually changes the function of one particular protein, and that is responsible for all of the symptoms of that disease. So scientists can actually piece together from this single gene mutation, even in the context of some um, gene variants that sort of fall under this family, like there's a collection of gene variants that are responsible for familial hypercholesteremia. So that is the type of like high cholesterol that runs in families, that if you happen to have that, um, you have a much higher risk of early heart disease. Um, also, the, the breast cancer genes, for example, would fall under this, this sort of, um, even though they're increasing risk of cancer, the, the scientists can point directly to the function of those genes, to how that is permissive for the development of breast and ovarian cancer which is why people with BRCA1 and BRCA2 um, can have more than like a 50% higher chance of developing breast cancer. Um, so these all kind of fall under that category of, I can draw a straight line as a scientist. This is <laughs> not me personally, because I did not do genetics research, but as scientists can draw a straight line from, we understand this one mutation in this one gene that impacts the function of a the protein that that gene encodes, because remember, genes are a, a genetic map for the cell to make proteins. We understand how that changes the protein in a way that changes how that protein works and how that leads to the disease. But all of these are actually, you know, they're all very rare conditions. What I think is more interesting is the, the study of how genes may increase our disease risk without directly causing the disease. So this would be things like having one or two copies of the ApoE4 gene, which we've talked about on the show before. People with uh, ApoE4 tend to have higher uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors and actually Alzheimer's disease risk when they eat a higher fat diet. So they have a, a, a much lower tolerance to dietary fat than people with ApoE2 or ApoE3 variants of the ApoE gene. So that's a good example of a gene that increases risk, but it's not a direct line. It increases your risk of cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's, but there's still things that you can do uh, preventatively to reduce your risk of developing cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's, even with the you know higher risk gene variant. So these types of genes, they tend to be implicated in the development, the progression, the clinical manifestation of diseases. Cardiovascular disease is actually probably the, the best understood. Um, there's actually been hundreds of genes that have been implicated in increasing cardiovascular disease risk, but not a, there's not a single gene that then that is the gene that is the, the cause. It is more how these genes impact how your body responds to other determinants of health, 
other things in your environment. And what's fascinating is the, the research that has actually looked at gene environment interactions. And in this case, it's not actually even as simple as if I have these gene variants, then I have higher risk for these disease because the interactions can be incredibly complex. So APOE4 is a pretty simple example of a gene that then interacts with the environment. In this case, right, it's, it's diet and other things that contribute to cardiovascular disease risk like high chronic stress, a sedentary lifestyle, uh, not getting enough sleep, right? All of those things are going to increase risk of cardiovascular disease. High saturated fat, low fiber diet is going to increase risk of cardiovascular disease. And having an one or two copies of APOE4 then magnifies that risk way more. But sometimes the interaction with the environment is actually even more complex than that. So for example, there's some genetic mutations that have what are called differential responses to cigarette smoke and its association with lung cancer, which this is fascinating. So no surprise for our listeners, but uh, tobacco smoke is bad for you. It contains a whole array of chemical carcinogens that are known to cause DNA damage. And on the biological side, we have a bunch of different enzymes, proteins, that their job is DNA repair, and they work to repair this damage. We have those because being in outside, right, the sun causes DNA damage. So we have a whole pile of innate mechanisms to be able to deal with that in normal amounts, right? So when someone's smoking, generally that's a higher amount of DNA damage than our um, body is able to adapt to. And then that ends up having the effect of increasing cancer risk, right? But this this gene, it's called XRCC1, which stands for X-ray repair cross-complementing protein 1. And it is a protein that is involved in fixing a single-strand DNA breaks. Um, and it, it does this in a complex way that we don't need to get into. I Honestly, I won't even pretend to understand it well enough to <laughs> explain it. Um, but what's fascinating is there's been uh, a, a couple of different mutations, but one specific mutation in this XRCC1 gene that if you have this, it's a rare mutation, it's not very common, and are a non-smoker, you have 2.4 times greater risk of lung cancer than non-smokers with the regular XRCC1. And heavy smokers with this XRCC1 have a 50% lower risk of lung cancer compared to other heavy smokers. So this particular gene mutation increases risk of cancer in people who don't smoke, but decreases risk of cancer relative to your increased risk in general by being a heavy smoker. And so it's really complex uh, to understand how gene variants impact disease risk because there can be these differential responses. And this is just like one single example. When you start looking at collections of genes, hundreds of genes may be interacting with each other, interacting with the environment out of our 30,000-ish genes that we have, it starts to become a really complex picture. So at this point, it's really hard to put a number for most chronic conditions how much 
our genetics contributes to the risk, right? So we know for autoimmune disease, we can say approximately one-third of our risk comes from our genetic predisposition, but we can't necessarily say that for all different types of chronic conditions because it layering on another layer of complication, conditions can run in a family because of our genetics, because we're inheriting autoimmune risk genes, for example. But there's other things that can explain why you might have a certain, you know, chronic disease that runs in the family. It could also be explained by common exposures to, you know, pesticides or contaminated drinking water because of, you know, sharing a common environment, living in the same house or the same uh, town that has whatever lead in the drinking water, for example. There's also learned behaviors that, that you're learning from your family members, things related to lifestyle, diet, smoking, drinking, right? Health-related behaviors. There's social determinants of health, which we're going to get into in depth, and also epigenetics. And so research is sort of continuing to untangle the genetic contribution and epigenetics, which is fairly new. It's really only been described since about the early 2000s, 2007, 2008, sort of the first papers that really um, started to understand the heritability of epigenetics, which means you inherit uh, not just your genes, but the epigenetic expression of those genes from your parents. And that just that just took the entire field of genetics and it was like opening a huge can of worms because what epigenetics is, is um, controls outside of our genes that control whether or not a gene is turned on or turned off or ramped up or slowed down. So if you think of a gene as a map for a protein, the, the steps that go from DNA, right, the map into protein, it goes through two steps. So the DNA is first transcribed into RNA, and then the RNA is translated into protein. And there's also, in that process, the pieces that are go from DNA to protein, those are happening in different areas of the cell. So there's also transportation. It, it has to happen in different areas. And our cells have an amazing capacity to regulate which genes are turned on or turned off. And this is a normal part of adaptation, right? So, um, for example... We don't need all of the different proteins that are involved in tissue repair to be made at all times. We only need all those different proteins to be involved in tissue repair when we injure ourselves. So our cells can go, oh, look, injury, let's start making all these proteins that are important for tissue repair. We have the genetic maps in our cells at all times, but we're not necessarily making those proteins until the cell detects that we need it. And of course, detecting that we need it is a very, very complex. It involves literally thousands of different molecules, and that is the biological field called cell signaling. Okay, but before we like fully get into epigenetics, I have so many questions on genetics, and then (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you just kept moving on because we have so many pages of notes, but I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is how, first of all, how do scientists even mechanistically identify genes. So for example, how does one discover, so to say, XRCC1? And do we know what that gene 
expression was doing bef- like before smoking was a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like if I'm thinking mm-hmm. back to um for example, our our ancestors like is that something that would have been relevant to cavemen sitting around a fire and even before that to the evolutionary process of before cave you know what I mean? Like I'm trying to think of What's fascinating to me about the field of genetics, and I'm even more excited about epigenetics, so you just wait. I'm already jazz hands excited and hand talking over here. But um, it's just this idea that, like, how do we even know that there are 30,000? Like, I see Jurassic Park, and the DNA strands are talking, and they're, I wish I could do the accent, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like, they're talking, and, they're, and we're taking frog DNA, and we're putting it in here, and like, okay, that's a cartoon. Literally, that's my understanding of <laughs> how things work. And even then, I'm like, but how do you know what pieces are missing? How do you even know what pieces are there to identify what pieces are missing? And how do you grab the missing pieces from something else? Like, the whole thing just baffles me because it's like it's like computer code. It's all zeros and ones, right? But I'm just looking at a screen, and it's pretty, and I can process that. Yes, it's all zeros and ones, but there's actually four nucleotides. But <laughs> it's like zeros, ones, twos, and threes, I guess. Um, so the human genome has been sequenced for 15, 20 years, a long time. It's been a long time. Uh, I was in my, let me see him now, my second postdoctoral research fellowship when it was fully sequenced. Ye olden days. It's okay. Ye olden days. Um And so we have a really good sense of what that map looks like in terms of the order of the nucleotides. So, um, you know, ACTGs all the the way, all the way down, um, you know, we, we have the sequence basically. So we have the, the, I mean, what would you, would you call it? You would have the code, the computer code, right? I know what all my zeros, ones, twos, and threes are and what order they come in on average. And then, I mean, I don't know anything about the the actual discovery process that went with XRCC1, so I can't talk to the history of the discovery of, of that gene and its protein and what it all does, but I can sort of talk sort of more generally as somebody who did research in understanding, you know, a new protein and how it works, kind of how that research is performed. So, Typically, once you have, let's say you start with a bunch of people who have a condition in common that's running in the family, you would start with gene sequencing and you would look at people who don't have that condition, who are not related, and you would start identifying areas that are different in that genome. And then you would start identifying which genes, like, and the, the you we have a pretty good sense of which genes are the map for which proteins, um, because biology's been studying this, you know, if you think of one researcher will typically study one or maybe a collection of related proteins and that's their entire career. So like the protein that I studied in my PhD was called hemoxygenase one. The protein that I studied in my first postdoctoral research fellowship was called angiopoietin one. And the protein that I studied in my second postdoctoral research, um, uh, fellowship was called endotubin, right? So I, I, in each step, um, I had like one protein that was like the complete focus of all of my research. Um, so hemoxygenase one was a really important antioxidant enzyme. 
that helped to reduce inflammation. Angiopoietin-1 was a really important angiogenic growth factor, so it helped uh, with making blood vessels and controlling blood vessel growth. And endotubin was really important for uh, the cell being able to, it's called cell trafficking. So it's how the cell, when it makes proteins, gets those proteins to the right part of the cell to be able to do its job. That's called cell trafficking. And endotubin was really important for helping the cell get proteins to the tight junction in an epithelial cell. And it turned out to be a tumor suppressor gene, which was something that I discovered in my research, which was really cool because what we discovered by blocking endotubin in cells was that those cells became cancerous. So the types of tools that researchers have to be able to identify, uh, like we'll start with, like we've, we've studied these people, we have these genes that we know the, this family that all has this condition have in common, that this other family that doesn't have this condition doesn't. Now we can take each single one of these and we can use basically viruses to um, change the, the DNA inside cells to match what's in this family and see how that impacts the cell. And then we can do things called um, transgenic mice. So we can do the same thing in animal models and we can make those animals then have the same gene mutation as these people do and study what's happening in those animals. And through often years and years and years long process. In all of this, you might get specific antibodies being made so that you can do a bunch of different biological assays to measure the protein. Um, you're, there's like some really advanced tools for sequencing DNA, for um, then altering DNA in cells or in animals to be able to study it. Um, and then being able to like measure the effects. You might do a variety of different types of like microscopy. I did no less than like six different types of microscopy as a medical researcher. So there's like so many advanced tools that would then help you basically go, okay, uh, I, these are the gene candidates that I think are responsible for this condition in these people. Now I have identified what that mutation is from gene sequencing. Now I'm going to make my, these cells have that gene mutation. I'm going to study how they grow. I'm going to study how that impacts how, how they function. And then I'm going to expand that once I think, aha, I think this is the gene that is the likely culprit. Then I'll expand that into animal models. And all every single step of the way, researchers are getting a better understanding of you know, if it's a novel gene, which means we don't really know much about the protein it encodes, then it's helping us understand what that protein does inside the cell and then what the, the variation that's associated with the disease, how that changes how the protein works compared to normal. So it's a, a huge array of different, you know, research tools that are being used um, and which tools would be appropriate would sort of depend on exactly, you know, what what this candidate protein is and how, you know, some, sometimes gene mutations will increase how much of something is made. Sometimes it'll decrease, right? So sometimes you're looking at what happens if you don't have this protein or if this protein doesn't work as well. Sometimes it's like, what if this protein works twice as well?
This podcast is sponsored by Lumino, the first ever dentist-formulated, naturally-derived, clinically-tested, certified, non-toxic oral care company in the world. You won't find harsh bleaches, artificial dyes, or alcohol in any of their products. Their formulas for toothpaste, mouthwash, and whitening products actually help your oral health instead of hurting it. Okay. We've been using their oral care products for quite a while now, and they feel like a step above any other natural brands we've tried. Not that I've been able to find anything that compares to their whitening products, but it's backed by actual testing and science data with a focus on microbiome in the mouth. It feels like it was made for us, Sarah. Completely. And I totally geeked out on their clinical studies. These products are designed to neutralize the toxins responsible for infection and disease in your mouth, but without harming the balance of your body's first line of defense, your microbiome. And they even did a clinical study to prove that using the clean and fresh mouthwash significantly reduced markers of inflammation in those with gingivitis. I've tried a lot of safer toothpaste and none have the science behind them as Lumino. I love that their whitening products don't risk harming your health. Everything they make is certified non-toxic, dentist formulated, backed by over 50 studies and proven to protect your microbiome. I feel safer having my whole family use it. I am big on testing and can see their commitment to safety. Yes, and I love their purposeful and uncompromising ingredients like sea salt, aloe, and coconut oils to clean and brighten your smile. And I love how my smile feels and looks using their products. Find Lumino on Amazon.com and get $7 off today. That's L-U-M-I-N-E-U-X. Remember, it's spelled with an X, so you can X out the harm. (laughs) They even have subscribe and save options for even more savings on Amazon, too. Lumino, dedicated to illuminating better ideas in oral care. The next thing that we're going to talk about first came into my perspective when I had a greater understanding of the implications of genetics as it related to my adopted mother specifically. So when my mom has um, expressions of epigenetics, I now kind of have a greater understanding of some of what that is. And so I'm just going to, I know you kind of already led into epigenetics a little bit, but I think from my very layman's perspective, the easiest way that I understood it was when I think it was you that explained it to me um, because I've been asking (laughs) about epigenetics a lot over the last couple of years, um, is this concept that when my mom was in her mother's womb, her eggs already formed. And so I already was impacted by my grandmother, whom I never met, her decision to smoke, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about that, when we think about, um, and I know we're going to talk about social determinants of health, but something like food insecurity, for example, being a factor for a pregnant woman who is then making the children, like if it's a female, it's that much more because the eggs are formed at birth and you never make more, right? So 
when I kind of had that perspective of it, I was like, whoa. And it was, you know, it's one of those things like when you're pregnant, you start thinking about, for me at least, that was when I started kind of becoming more health conscious. Like somehow it wasn't something I wanted to do for myself, but was what I wanted to do for my children. Like now I say that out loud and I'm like, duh, Stacey. Um, But it was the impetus for me. And now I think about just like how much more important that was that like, so much of my health decisions changed around the time that I became pregnant with Cole, but I did not like make conscious decisions before then in preparation for pregnancy. And what are those implications on him and his children's children? And that's how I think of epigenetics. And I know it's a lot more complicated than that, especially when we're talking about, you know, DNA and all that kind of stuff. But that was a way for me to kind of wrap my brain around how does what my grandmother did affect me? I never even met her. You know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. it does. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. There's such good science now showing that there's, you know, basically you know, generational inherited changes to which genes are turned on or off that go at least across, you know, from grand grandparent to grandchild. And actually it's it's not just the what's happening on the mother's side. It's not just the mother's eggs. Um, there's actually in some cases even stronger um, epigenetic inheritance through the paternal line, which is fascinating. Um, this all, uh, you know, these, these studies started in sort of early, early to mid knots 2000s. Um, and the, some of the earliest studies, which I still find just fascinating, were using data on um, sort of the so there was this study on the 1944 to 1945 Dutch famine that looked at um, male children who were in utero during that famine. During that famine lasted about five months, and what happened to their children? So, if the in this case the mother, you know, basically was malnourished during her pregnancy, the, um, with a male child, then that male, that man grew up and had more kids. So this is now we're talking about through the, again, through the paternal line, but the grandmother was, uh, in the, in a famine during pregnancy, those children had increased risk of obesity, glucose intolerance, and coronary heart disease in adulthood. Um, and this was associated with changes in epigenetics. So they were measuring DNA methylation. So epi- there's a variety of different ways that the which genes are expressed is controlled. And there's a variety of different ways that those are inherited. Um, and again, I will not even pretend to, to really understand all of these detailed mechanisms. I sort of, I, I know them in, in concept, but not in detail, if that makes any sense. Um, but they, 
that is again through through the paternal line uh, showing that gestational famine followed, especially followed by a calorie-rich date, uh, diet later in life, increased risk of, of diseases. And then there was a similar sort of time frame, early 2000s now, uh, studies that were done, and I do not know how to pronounce the name of this parish in Sweden, over, over Calix. I didn't do that. I didn't do that right. Um, but this, this parish had incredibly detailed records of um, all of the different families, um, births and deaths, um, it through through the entire, uh, you know, f- since the 1890s, back even farther than that. And then they also had really detailed um, data on the crops and and how much food was available. So researchers that have been able to go back and look at um, different years when people were born and whether or not that was a year where there was not very much food and uh, food was very scarce versus years where there was a bumper crop and there was like tons of food. And what's fascinating is, again, this is inherited epigenetics. So it's not it's not the genes, it's not the DNA, it's whether or not those genes are turned on or off that is inherited, and it's stronger through the male line. And it showed that there's um, a link between whether or not there was lots of food or not very much food available to children during that time, and then what happened to their grandchildren. So if you were five, six to eight years old, during a time of uh, tons of food, then your grandchild, again, through the male line, had an increased risk of dying from diabetes. And then if there wasn't very much food when you were a child, sort of pre-pubescent child, uh, then you had a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease in your grandchild, again, through the male line. Um, and, uh, what's, and also if you were a child and there was tons of food, then your grandchild had a shorter lifespan. Um, it's fascinating data. And of course there's been tons of studies since there's been studies looking at transgenerational transmission of trauma, um, studies looking at Holocaust survivors, refugee families, um, showing increased risk for mental health challenges um, from inherited changes to genetics as a response um, of that trauma going down at least two generations, right? This is sort of right now that the stage where this, this science is at, it's not at a, at a point where there's enough data to look at a third, or I guess that is three generations. There's not enough science to start looking at a fourth generation, but what, you know, the amount of science in epigenetics over the last decade has just been amazing because now what scientists can say is that there's a huge number of complex traits, um, everything from how tall you grow to your metabolism, to your fertility, mental health challenges, physical health that are epigenetically inherited um, and that they're things that respond to environment or nutritional conditions. So the exposures of your 
grandparents, whether in utero or as children, can impact your health. Um, and it's I think what, doing this through the, through this mechanism. What fascinates me, especially because I heard about the transgenerational transmission of trauma and the Holocaust survivors when, um, I don't know when it first came out, because I think it's been out like a decade now, but definitely like, I don't know, four or five years ago, especially as, you know, my mom and I were in the thick of doing a lot of um, Ancestry.com and DNA searches for Mm -hmm. her biological family um, is where we originally came across this information, especially because my mom found in her DNA that she had Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. So this idea that the trauma, which is very like deeply... Um, heartfelt in both of us, even though neither of us had any like association with Jewish Jewish culture, but we're both very like very empathetic to it. If that makes sense. like, there's mm-hmm. just you know how you have certain things like Wesley has a has a passion for homelessness. Like who knows where that comes from, but he just feels very passionately about helping those who do not have homes and for me and my mother, we had this like bond to this factor. And so finding out that that was in her DNA is like, is there something ingrained in our, in our DNA that transferred that trauma to be associated like with that kind of pain, for example, that then makes it feel that much more alarming. And I, you know, the science doesn't map it that particular way, but I think it does for someone who has personal experience to be able to see that the science does show that there is, for example, a higher risk of mental health problems. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, well, that doesn't, uh, unfortunately, it's super sad, but it doesn't surprise me at all because of the incredible trauma that happened to those families, knowing that something like that happened to your mother or your grandmother, or, you know, even if it's um, friends and family of that generation, or, you know what I mean? Like that whole thing is just complete trauma. But the idea that epigenetics in general passes down, not just that mom or dad was, was smoking, or mom and dad went through a famine, mom and dad went through trauma, I think informs a lot as well for me at this point in my life around helping foster kids, you know, for example, have all experienced trauma. Like if you're ripped from your family, that is in and of itself trauma, regardless of circumstances. And to now know that I'm helping someone who is struggling with, you know, a lifetime of trauma And one of the things in the mental health world that they talk about um, is what they call multi-generational trauma. And the exponential effect of multi-generational trauma is much more than the exponent of like one to two, right? So if mom had trauma and then it, it becomes like that thing as we as teenagers are like, well, I don't want to do things the way my parents did things, but then inevitably <laughs> we right. do, right? Yeah. But in a very 
very broken, toxic sort of way in a, in families that have experienced trauma, it's so hard to break the cycle and to know that most people don't intend to have that behavior or to feel certain ways or to have, you know, um, mental health challenges that aren't mediated by therapy or medication or those kinds of things or, or addictive behaviors that are difficult to break. Like there's, there's so many things that go into that, that for me, when I think about epigenetics now, it's like, it's like a fire hose that was coming out onto the street and now the pop just the top just popped off and it's like water's coming in all directions because it it affects so much and it's so important in our understanding and having compassion for people in general I think to understand that it's not just about what one person can control and I think we need to be kinder to ourselves in understanding that when we're doing everything that we can to make the best decisions that we can to sleep and lifestyle, all the stuff we're going to talk about, like know that there's so much more that has gone into who you are and what affects your biology Mm -hmm. that, you know, you have to have grace and just sometimes to be like, well, that's, it is, it is what it is. And I've done the best that I can and be okay with that and move forward because the more that, we learn about the stuff, the more that we realize, you know, we do not control as much as we would like to think that we do. I mean, I think that is the take home message of this entire episode. Um, and I, I want to highlight, I think something that you just referred to Stacy, which is basically anything that can be sort of generically labeled as a stressor can cause epigenetic changes. So it has been well documented. We just talked about studies looking at diet and how that can uh, change health outcomes down to the third generation, at least. Pollution uh, and toxin exposure, smoking, um, obviously, you know, a stress um, and trauma is, is like psychological stress, traumatic events, Uh, also uh, have been well documented to impact health down at least to the third generation. And it's not just mental health. It's also cancer has been particularly strongly linked to epigenetic aberrations. Also cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease, metabolic disease, neurodegenerative diseases, and uh, also diseases associated with aging. Um, So really all of the different health challenges that are things we talk about on the show all the time in terms of how we can change our day-to-day choices, this helps frame it in, I think, another way, which is we're not just trying to do the best we can, not letting perfection be the enemy of the good for ourselves, but we have this opportunity to also you know, not just change your health, but maybe break some generational cycles and help to improve the health of our children and our grandchildren and hopefully eventually our great, great grandchildren at the same time. But your point, Stacey, of also recognizing um, that there are uh, many factors outside of our control that are influencing our health. And that is an excellent segue into social determinants of health, that it's also really important to give ourselves grace um, control the things that we can control, but let go of the things that we can't. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed. 
Right now, hiring is a challenge. It's time for a hiring partner that can help you rise to the challenge. Indeed. <laughs> okay, <fun laughs> queen. How about this? Indeed is actually how I got my big career break in ye olden days. Not quite the uh, 1900s, but almost. <laughs> They've grown so much since then. Now they have virtual interview options, so Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. As a virtual business, I love that Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interviews work from your browser, saving you headaches. Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Instant Match sounds super cool, actually. As soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Um, easy button? Yes, please. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash WholeView. This offer is valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash WholeView to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash WholeView. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think for me, I I grew up in a home that is a different social determinant than my children are growing up in. Yeah. And um, it always felt like a, um, a thing of pride, a thing of like, oh, I did this. I, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I worked hard. And now, now because I did the thing, my kids have it better and therefore everybody can do that. And I just feel so badly that I ever like had that mentality or gave that impression to anyone else. Because as we're going to talk about social determinants of health, there were so many things that went into my ability to do that. Places that I got lucky, doors that were open to me because of different social determinants that I had available to me. And um, not to mention, like, I am super lucky to be a highly intellectual person, like a, a gifted intellectual person and the doors that opened for me because of that. And I just, I, again, like if I could go back in time and kind of revisit some of the things that we did years and years ago, it would just be to have more compassion for the entire world to think that like, if we are, if you're listening to this podcast on a, you know, computer or a smartphone device, and you have the ability to buy sustainably, humanely raised meat and, you know, fresh local organic vegetables at the farmer's market, like we are less than 1% of the world. And what a gift that is. And it's great. And it's good to know that and to like, there's no, there's no shame in that. 
but there's also needing to have an understanding and compassion that when we when we talk about those things like making good lifestyle choices we also have to know that that's not something that's accessible for everybody and everybody still deserves health yeah i agree completely and i think um it's why I was so excited to see that this was a topic that our Patreon family Same. really wanted us to cover. We screenshot just so yeah, just so everybody knows when we had the Patreon poll, and we had both epigenetics listed and then social determinants of health list- listed separately, and the fact that they were the top two. I screenshotted and I sent to Sarah, I think my exact words were, I'm so proud of our community because there were so many things that were like self-centered topics, so to speak, right? Like things that benefit you personally, but to want to learn about social determinants of health means that you're thinking of others. And that's just why our listeners are the best in the world. And I could not agree. I'm so glad you said that because it's so true how excited we got about this. Um, So here is the statistic that I did not realize until I was pulling together this show just how important social determinants of health are relative to everything else. So biological and health behavior. So that is genetics, epigenetics, and your diet, your lifestyle, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you drink, um, you know, your, like all of the choices that you're making day to day, all of those things together. Genetics, biology, plus behavior accounts for 25% of your health. The other 75% is determined by social determinants of health, which include things like your social environment, your physical environment, your access to medical care. Um, It's actually everything to do with the environments where we are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age, and how those impact Uh, Things like safe housing, transportation, safe neighborhoods, um, racism, discrimination, violence, our education, our job opportunities, our income, uh, those impact our access to nutritious foods and physical activity opportunities. That impacts whether or not we're exposed to polluted air or polluted water, um, language, literacy skills, all of those things fall under the wider umbrella of social determinants of health. And social determinants of health are the main or the contribution to health disparities and inequities. So for example, people who don't live near grocery stores, who live in a food desert, don't have access to healthy foods and are less likely to have good nutrition. And that therefore then raises their risk of heart disease, diabetes, uh, obesity, as a, you know, symptom of poor health-related behaviors and poor quality diet, it lowers life expectancy. And the mechanisms through which social determinants of health uh, are actually impacting health, certainly part of this is epigenetic. So being exposed to violence is going to be a trauma and that is going to leave an epigenetic signature that is then transmitted over generations. But they also are impacting things like diet quality in general, uh, lifestyle, especially through chronic stress. So many of the things that we'll talk to as social determinants of health, the mechanism of how they're impacting health is through 
chronic psychosocial stress and lack of sleep because many and lack of sleep. Yeah. Many people often have multiple jobs. Yep. Um, or are not sleeping well because of stress, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, right. Mental health challenges, safety in general, right. That is going to impact stress levels, uh, health related behaviors, uh, whether that's through learned behaviors, but also through coping behaviors. So think of smoking and drinking, as uh, maladaptations to stress, um, but in such certain situations, it's still a better response to the stress than some of the other alternatives, right? Um, ex- environmental exposures like pollution, and I want to emphasize because we have we have just done most of the last 500 episodes. Um, we've certainly talked about um, you know things like. Uh, racial inequities in in health on the on the show before, um, but the vast majority of our nearly 500 episodes, we're talking about the things that impact the 25 percent, not the 75 percent. And I think it is incredibly important to acknowledge that promoting healthy choices does not eliminate these other health disparities. Social determinants of health are independent of the healthy choices. They make healthy choices harder, but they're also harmful to health outside of healthy choices. And it's why it's so important to layer on the message of giving ourselves grace um, because there's aspects here that we do not have the capability to control, but also increasing our awareness so that we can help Others, I think, is really, really important. Understanding our own privilege uh, with regards to self- social determinants of health, I think, is really, really important. Can you share with us the areas in which um, a lot of these are grouped and seen or how we can think about them? Yeah, so their social determinants of health are generally grouped into five main areas, economic stability, education access and quality, healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and built environment, and social and community context. And so we'll talk about what each of those sort of are very briefly, because I think we could have an entire podcast, uh, like 500 episodes, I think, just on social determinants of health. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is such a, a big, big topic, but I want to cover each of these at least briefly just to help our listeners really understand the scope of the challenge. And then we'll talk about where race and racism fit into all five of those domains. Um, and along with sharing some resources where our listeners can, uh, learn more as well as, um, learn more about the the issues, but also advocacy. So economic stability basically refers to, Um, not just poverty, but things like food insecurity. One in 10 Americans, people living in the United States, live in poverty. But more than that, um, many, many more than that, people can't afford things like healthy foods or healthcare or safe housing. And studies have shown that people with steady employment are less likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to be healthy. Um, And it's important to understand that people with disabilities, injuries, conditions like arthritis are especially limited in their ability to to work, Um, but many people have trouble finding and keeping a job. 
Um, and many people with steady work still don't earn enough to be able to afford the things that they need to stay healthy. So the policy targets for addressing uh, the disparities in economic stability are things like employment programs, career counseling, high quality childcare opportunities, all of those things can make a really big difference to helping more people find and keep jobs. And then policies that are related to helping people pay for food, housing, healthcare, and education can also reduce poverty and improve health and well-being. that education access and quality are factors. I know, especially when we look outside of America, some of the um, programs like, uh, I think about Oprah School, for example, you know, like teaching young girls how to read is just a basic um, thing that we don't realize is so impactful here in America that we all have yeah. access to free education. For sure. And I think even within America, right, we see a large disparity in terms of uh, quality of education and yeah. access to higher education. So people with higher levels of education are more likely to be healthier and live longer. Um, and a lot of that has to do with how education relates to healthcare access and economic stability, right? Other social determinants of health. But studies have shown that children from low-income families, uh, as well as children with disabilities, routinely experience forms of discrimination like bullying um, and are more likely to struggle with math and reading. They're also less likely to graduate from high school or go to college, and that means they're less likely to get safe and high-paying jobs. Uh, and then, of course, that reduces economic stability. So these same kids, as they grow up, are more likely to have health problems like heart disease, diabetes, and depression. Um, and studies have shown that children who live in places with poorly performing schools, that many of those families can't afford to send their children to college, and the stress of living in poverty can also affect brain development, making it harder for those kids to do well in school. So the policy targets under sort of health education um, or education access and, and quality uh, under a social determinants of health are interventions to help children and adolescents perform better in school and help families pay for college, make college more accessible. Um, and those have been shown in the literature that they can have long-term health benefits. You know, if I think about areas of, like you said, this country who don't have the kind of supports that our county offers and children, even like Wesley, who would not be able to survive, I genuinely, like, there's no way that he would be successful long-term and how that would implicate, like, impact his ability to get jobs and all those other things that you're talking about. Like, it's just, there's huge factors in how all of these layer onto one another. And it's just, you know, like, it affects everyone. And it just reminds me to like have compassion and understanding for all because we we literally have no idea what people are, are going through. And the more that we can have these intervention interventions and be supportive are, are such game changers. I think um, one of the areas that's a little political, especially in America, and for you, you're not you're you're from Canada. You've been here a long time, so you know what things are yeah, like. But the, I'm a dual citizen now. Yeah. Yes, but the Canadian 
healthcare system, because you said, you know, past education is kind of looking into healthcare, like that one is one that is, I think, less, um, less everybody will get on board with, right? Here in America, everybody's like, yes, education's important, but no, we don't want to put funding towards it. It's kind of generally what we hear. Um, poor teachers. Can we just all give a shout out to all the teachers who just had a really tough couple of years, especially? Yeah. Um, but healthcare is just such a such a, a charged political thing. But I think if we think about it in the context of social determinants of health, um, it's it becomes more clear to me to again to have compassion and to you know be helpful to people. It, for sure, and I think you know if you think about access to healthcare and how that directly impacts health it's it's really easy to see right it's a it's a very it's not even a dotted line right it's a solid line from if you can't get things like cancer screenings right if you can't do preventative care then you're not going to be able to intervene and you're going to have poor outcomes because things are going to get caught later um people without health insurance or um, and that's one in 10 people in the United States don't have any health insurance. So that is people who aren't, um, you know, don't qualify for something like Medicaid, don't have employer sponsored health insurance and kind of fall into that, you know, hole in between where they're, you know, don't have the money to pay for, um, you know, a, a, their own health insurance don't qualify for other programs. And it's obviously there's large disparities depending on um, state to state now, whether or not that state expanded Medicare. Right. So there, again, this is definitely tying into politics over the last mm, 10 years. Um, but there's still a large percentage of Americans who don't have any kind of health insurance. And then there's an even larger proportion that are underinsured. So they have health insurance that would cover something catastrophic, but not enough to cover normal preventative care. So those people are less likely to have a primary care provider. They're often unable to afford healthcare services, medications that they need. Sometimes they live too far away from healthcare providers who can offer them. The policy targets here are strategies to increase insurance coverage. Um, that's, that's also really important. And then make sure more people are getting those really essential healthcare services like preventative care, like treatment for chronic illnesses. Um, you know, falling under this banner is making prescription medications more affordable. Um, there's other, uh, potential interventions to increase access to healthcare professionals and improve communication, right? Address language barriers. That can even be done remotely and just making sure that every person gets gets to see a doctor every single year for a checkup, gets to see a doctor when they're sick. It's it's a um it's a really basic aspect of human health and one that, you know, somebody who who grew up in a country with socialized medicine um, it's always sort of been a little bit strange to me, the disparity between um, sort of haves and have nots in America in terms of, of healthcare access. And I want to also mention that you know, we talked a lot about healthcare access and quality in our harm of weight discrimination shows, episodes 471 and 472, because there's a whole other layer to this, which is discrimination in healthcare, which also further needs to be addressed on top of access. I actually wrote down in my notes, I was like, 
major follow-up topic to dive into, um, specifically discrimination in medical community, just because I think we've touched on it in a couple of different places, but um, it in and of itself is something to navigate as someone who has an autoimmune disease and is not believed or who, you know, is being discriminated against because of um, what you look like. Either way, it can be incredibly difficult to navigate the healthcare system. And that's if you even have access because you have insurance or, you Mm -hmm. know, are able to find the right provider and all these things. So if we think about our own personal experience with difficulty of that, of, of avoiding um, because of our bad experiences, and then we put that into, and what if it was that much harder to have access or to be able to afford um, all those things? It's just um, very obvious to me why that is a barrier to health for so many people. Yeah. And then the the next one is neighborhoods and built environment, which again, you can you can start to see the interconnectedness of all of these. So there's a variety of science that shows that the neighborhoods we live in has a direct impact on our health and well-being. You can think of this very simply in the context of neighborhoods with high rates of violence, but also places with unsafe air or unsafe water or other, you know, health and safety risks. But it's also really important to recognize that racial and ethnic minorities and people with low incomes are more likely to live in places with these risks, with either, um, you know, polluted air, unsafe water, um, higher higher rates of violence and crime. And in addition, people who are exposed to things at work that can harm their health, like secondhand smoke or loud noises, falls under this category. Also under this category would be things to like access to nature spaces, access to areas that uh, can foster physical activity, access to grocery stores, right? All of those things kind of fall under this, this umbrella of neighborhood and built environment, as does, you know, there's a really strong connection between this and uh, social and community uh, context, right? Feeling uh, like integrated into your community is also directly tied to the, ab- the, the neighborhood itself. And we've done a lot of shows on pollutants, on toxins, on um, you know, things that can contaminate drinking water, for example, and we'll obviously, as normal, put links to all of these relevant episodes in our show notes. Um, but I think this is still a much bigger topic than, than we've covered in detail in the show before. And interventions include things like um, policy changes that would have to happen at local, state, and federal levels in order to help reduce, um, especially, you know, things like uh, pollution exposure, but all of the sort of health and safety risks um, that can be associated with neighborhood and built environments. And this can include things like um, providing uh, sidewalks and bike lanes to give people the opportunity to to walk or bike in their communities, um, looking at, you know, fixing infrastructure to make sure people have safe water to drink. All of those types of, of policy targets would, would fall under this banner. It's actually a really big, big challenge. I was just thinking about an additional intervention being Aaron Brockovich, 
Um, <laughs> she <laughs> she definitely counts under this. Definitely. Erin Brockovich is our primary. Oh, she's an amazing advocate, actually, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, yeah, and I, I definitely will will point our, our listeners to our, our show on Forever Chemicals as being particularly relevant uh, to, to this particular umbrella because it talked about uh, pollution as well as um, safe drinking water. In, yeah, and in, in the environment that you can't control as well. Yeah. So, okay. Social and community. If Aaron Brockovich is not in your neighborhood, going door to door. Um, what <laughs> what what else impacts? Yeah, I mean, we've also talked on the show before about how our relationships and our interactions can impact our health, and that includes with family, with friends, with coworkers, with community members, and um, you know. We're talking about a situation where many people face challenges uh, that they they don't have control over. So that could be unsafe neighborhoods. It could be uh, discrimination. There's a direct link with uh, economic stability here. If you can't afford the things you need, again, a direct link with economic stability. If you can't afford a, a home in a safe neighborhood. Um, they, these all then have a negative impact on health and on safety throughout our entire lives. Um, and on the flip side, positive relationships have been shown to greatly reduce, um, a lot of negative impacts of social determinants of health, which is really interesting. Um, but the, the interventions here, the policy targets are, helping people get social and community support um, to help foster uh, those positive relationships um, to, to help, you know, deal with things like bullying um, to help, you know, children maybe whose parents are in jail, they are often bullied, right? So addressing that through social and support networks is, is also very, very important because our relationships are so critical to our health. I keep going back to the moment um, when a wonderful community member messaged me and said, like, I need you to talk about the fact that there are racial disparities in health and that Black Lives Matter, because if we aren't safe, we cannot worry about prioritizing our health. And that was a huge wake up call for me that has now also played into, you know, fostering if the if those kiddos don't feel safe, they cannot care about math. And if they don't care about their education, then that is why so many foster kids don't graduate high school. You know, and, and it just it was such a powerful statement to make. And I'm so glad that they did because I'm sure it wasn't easy to kind of call someone out like that in a caring way. Um, But it also makes me realize how that applies to so many other things. Like you said, you know, for children to be bullied in school, like this affects all of us every day. And I think some of us for, for me in particular, being as privileged as I am with the social community and the environment in which I live, right? The neighborhood that I live and the, the people who surround me and, and all these kinds of things and the education that I have to 
filter my water and then the means that I have to do that and, you know, all that kind of stuff just um, really was a wake up call for me. And I think that kind of leads into our last but not least area of conversation, which is this idea that um, racism is still a primary driver for those social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And we did, you know, get into the details of that on that racial disparity show, but even more than that, um, how very much difficult it would be to focus on prioritizing health when faced with discrimination and difficulties on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say that racism basically underlies and sets the stage for all of those other social determinants of health. And this has actually been shown in the medical literature, um, you know, over and over and over again to show that there's a really clear relationship between racism and mental and physical health outcomes. There's actually an enormous systematic review and meta-analysis published in 2015. And our regular listeners know how much I love meta-analyses used data from 293 studies that were reported in 333 articles published between 1983 and 2013, um, most of which were conducted in the U.S., and looked at how racism impacted health and showed a really strong relationship uh, between uh, the experience of of racism, whether, again, as we talked about in, um, in our previous shows, discrimination does not require you to be aware of it. It doesn't require you to feel discriminated against in order for it to have a negative impact on your health. Um, so racism was associated with poor mental health as well as poor just general physical health. Um, but some of the strongest effects were in increased risk for depression, anxiety, uh, psychological stress and other sort of negative mental health outcomes. And it's been shown sort of again and again in in the scientific literature that racism has this negative impact on health through the impact on social determinants of health, right? Reduced access to employment, housing, education, increased exposure to other risk factors, uh, pollution, violence, for example. Um, it's been shown to have adverse effects on cognition and emotional processes, again, through psychosocial stress. Um, we talked on the show previously about allostatic load as a way of sort of measuring all the different, right, the, the physiological consequences of all the different stressors on a human and racism dramatically increases allostatic load. There's also then the like downstream impacts on health behaviors, like getting enough sleep, as you mentioned, Stacy, like getting enough exercise, um, things like alcohol, uh, tobacco use, um, how we cope with stress or how we are maladapted to cope with stress, uh, dietary choices. And then also the, the racism has been shown to directly increase risk of physical injury as a result of racially motivated violence. And we will put links to all of these uh, papers in in the show notes. Um, but there's been just a huge amount of, of scientific literature looking at this topic and showing unequivocally that this 
continues to be a problem, that racism continues to drive inequities in social determinants of health. And this is not just, this isn't just like one, this isn't personal racism, right? This is systemic inequities. And so these are things that need to be addressed on the policy level, which brings us to like, what can our listeners do, right? What is the the call to action? And I think first and foremost is you know, being willing to engage with this information, being willing to learn more about social determinants of health, uh, including their links to structural racism. And we'll put um, some links to some of the really amazing literature summaries from the Healthy People 2030 uh, initiative, which is a health.gov initiative um, that really brings all of the different literature into each one of these and very granular topics. Um, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but I also want to recommend considering joining or donating to advocacy groups and we'll put some, some links again to some places to start where you can sort of learn more and learn about the role of advocacy, um, to in, in the, in the show notes. Um, but Georgetown university health policy Institute, American Health Information and Management Association and American Academy of Family Family Physicians all have really great resources on their websites where they talk about social determinants of health as well as advocacy for health equity and where each one of our listeners as individuals can can help play a role. And I think the final call to action is to engage with the political process, um, especially local politicians are the ones that can have a really big impact on all of these different aspects, right? Uh, Opportunities in your area, um, regulations or laws that can help to address uh, some of these social determinants of health um, or funding that can be really, really important. Um, So my, my last call to action is to read up about the people who are running for local office and uh, not just, you know, statewide or, or national positions and um, vote for people who are going to make addressing these systemic inequities uh, a part of their platform. And I think in addition to that, also being willing to get a little uncomfortable when you see people in your day-to-day life say things like, assumptions that are uh, based on a different factor than what Sarah gave us at the top, which is, I think, you know, we talk so much about diet, lifestyle, and health-related behaviors as it relates to improving your own health and that of loved ones. But we know that that impacts 25% of health versus the social determinants of health having an impact of 75%. And so when you see people say things, whether it's in your real life or on social media or whatever it is, say things like, well, they just need to go to McDonald's less. You know, someone might look at me and say she needs to eat less McDonald's and have no idea that I haven't had McDonald's in 10 years. But that is the kind of statement that is made when someone is making an assumption about diet, lifestyle, and health-related behaviors versus um, having a more compassionate, broader, empathetic approach to health is not determined solely by someone's behaviors, right? And I think 
being able to say that, and for me personally, there's been a lot of people, whether they were my personal friends in the community or people who I was following and respected, who would say things that clearly showed that they did not understand the social determinants of health implication and trying to, well, what about the perspective that, you know, a majority of people do not have access to the thing that you're recommending right now and trying to get them to open up and understand. And if not, simply walking away, because I, I do think that part of this in understanding one's own privilege and, you know, opening up to helping others means we have to close off the the negative thought loop that creates these problems to begin with, right? And so if mm-hmm. we're constantly surrounded by that kind of thought and mentality, we can't ourselves back out of it and change. It's like that ocean that we're swimming in, right? Like we, it's so ingrained that we can't see it. And so we've, we've just got to start identifying it. And um, there's ways to be respectful and educate versus like creating a clash war on social media. Um, so if that's what you're inclined to do best to just unfollow <laughs> instead. <laughs> but I do think that there are some people like myself who had that person not made that comment to me in the beginning, would I have been as open to the learning and education that I did, which then, you know, I talked with you and I was like, Sarah, we have to talk about this. It's, it's uncomfortable and it might make some people not want to listen to the show, but that's, it it doesn't matter. It's what we have to do. We have to share this information because we can't talk about health without talking about these things. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I'm, I'm again, I want to reiterate just how amazing it is that our Patreon community what like requested that we dig into this topic because again, this is such a like the reason why we don't cover social determinants of health uh, sort of on the regular on on the podcast is because there's it feels like such a big challenge that it feels like each one of us as individuals don't there's not, we're not, we don't have the power here. I mean, and I might argue that we do because we can, uh, you know, vote for people who are going to make this a priority that we, we can donate to and join advocacy groups. Um, there, there are things that we can do, but it's very different than, um, you know, choosing, you know, broccoli over breadsticks in the grocery store, right? It's not something that we're doing for ourselves. It's something we're doing for our entire community for our entire society. And so it, it feels really big and it feels really intimidating. Um, and I think, again, I will bring this back to, um, you know, when we're talking about our own personal health journeys, understanding that all of the things that we've talked about on the show before, right, the diet and lifestyle, the, uh, avoiding toxins, the eating a neutral diet, the prioritizing sleep, working on stress management, working on living an active lifestyle, working on self-care and positive self-talk, the things that we typically cover on this show in depth, those are the 25%. And I think it's important to both, you know, recognize our privilege and identify areas where we can make a difference in our communities, where we can advocate for others. Um, that's really important, but it's also really important to understand how social determinants of health are impacting our own health, how our inherited epigenetics are impacting our own health. And 
And this is this is sometimes the the wall that we encounter on our health journeys where we feel like we're doing everything right and we're still not experiencing the health improvements or the health outcomes that we expected because that person over there is doing all the same things and look at how amazing everything is going for them, right? So also let's get away from social comparison. But I think I think the reason why this was such an important sort of family of topics, right? Determinants of health in general for us to to talk about on the show, for me to wrap up my last sort of research intense show with this topic for me is I think it's a really important to understand how we can improve not just our own health, but the health of our entire communities, but also understand where the boundaries are in our own health journeys and empower ourselves to control the things that we can control and also give ourselves grace for the things that are beyond our control. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you for yet another uh, very detailed 14-page um, show notes to to cover this topic. I know it is a doozy, and I'm I'm really grateful that we, as long as the show was, I don't think that you can talk about one or the other without um, combining all of these factors. And I think that's that's part of health, right? Like we want to just be like, well, tell me what the tell me what I just need to do, what I just need to eat. Um, but it's not as simple as that. And so mm-hmm. I love that we have a show where we can point people to it's all these things. And some of them you can control and some of them you can't. So thank you so much for doing this deep dive. And thank you to our amazing Patreon community for voting these topics in. If you are not yet in our Patreon community, um, let me just tell you that we have our final show with Sarah. Ooh, that is hard to say. No, (laughs) forgotten your name on the 499th episode. Um, Final show with Sarah episode 500 live coming next week, March 17th on our Patreon community. Um, and we will be doing a Q&A after. The show itself will come here to your um, feed like normal. But if you want to join us live, you can pop over to Patreon. And of course, it won't actually be your last show. Like we keep talking about yeah. it being your last show. It's just in this structure where you and I have this repetitive weekly, this is what we're doing. Um, it's outside of that context, but you will be back. I will hunt you down (laughs) (laughs) and you will text me and you'll be like, I miss you. Need me for anything. And so we promise our listeners, um, we, this will not be the last time you hear us together. You can definitely join us live on Patreon to come say goodbye to Sarah and ask any final questions you have. Um, our Patreon community has already submitted like four or five questions that they're trying to get in last minute for you. Um, but then, uh, of course, you will be back in the future to cover some other topics that we've already mapped out a few together. And I know we will come up with with more in the future. There's no way we can be apart. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I fully expect to get riled up about something and text you. And be like, <laughs> can I come on the show to rant about this? Um, yeah, I guess we should say my last show as a weekly co-host or a regular co-host. Yeah. But I will be back. I will be back as a guest co-host. And I want to, you know, assure our listeners 
that the lineup of guest co-hosts that you have coming on the show to cover some topics, I am so excited about because I can just see how like amazing it's going to be to be able to expand the, the, the sort of range of expertise on the show beyond things that I could ever talk about and be able to cover an even broader collection of really important health related topics on the show that again would be things that, you know, I don't, I don't have the experience or, or the right sort of background to be able to talk to. And I think I'm like, I, I'm going to miss being here every single week, but I'm also so excited to see the direction that this show can go in and then still be able to come back and, and visit and participate. So, uh, it's, I'm really, I'm, I'm optimistic and have a very positive outlook on the future, both of what I will be able to do with Nutrivor, uh, with being able to focus all of my time on Nutrivor, as well as I think the amazing opportunities that this show will have with this amazing cast of co-hosts that will be able to, to come on the show. All people that our listeners uh, are familiar with, or if they're not familiar with are still people they're going to love. So I think it's fantastic. And I'm so excited that our Patreon are so supportive of this shift. And I also want to thank all of our listeners for their kind words, um, words of support, Um, it's been just really, it's, it's been really nice to just be able to read so many, um, so many comments, understanding, you know, my need to focus on Nutrivor, um, and also assurance that you're still here for the whole view. Um, so I want to thank our Patreon fam. We're going to thank you more in our bonus audio. Uh, So head on over there and listen to that. Um, And thank all of our listeners for being here every single week. And I can say at least one last time, thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Oh, that one got me. (laughs) I know it. I I need a minute. To live Q&As and weekly bonus audio but they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.